0: Hello and welcome to Humanities Matter, brought to you by Brill. I'm Lee Chung Greco, and this week we'll be looking at key issues in the field of humanities. Welcome to part two of our conversation with Professor Corey Blad. We're talking about his paper, Searching for Saviors, Economic Adversities, and the Challenge of Political Legitimacy in the Neoliberal Era. I still find it interesting that you chose to focus on Sweden and Finland for this. Um, so many people hold up the Nordic model as this great equalizer in a capital si- capitalist system. Um, so why exactly didn't that work there? And then why do we still see a rise of nationalist parties in those two countries?
1: Yeah, that's a great question. Um this this was definitely intentional. Um and part of my interest in kind of examining um you know Nordic model welfare capitalism is to kind of highlight not necessarily the differences but the similarities. Um and one of the one of the things that you see and and this comes out in the paper a, a little bit more explicitly is that there are tremendous similarities in terms of increased cost burdens and increased costs associated with um, really just daily life within the context of both Sweden and Finland. Traditionally, the idea of welfare capitalism was that these costs could be mitigated or these costs could be, the impact of these cost increases could be reduced. By you know, either through the mechanism of state regulation in some capacity, or through the um, the kind of actual provision of services in um, a more specific way, you know, where the, the state will pay for these. you don't have to pay for these. you do indirectly through taxes, but you get my point. Um, so that that kind of reality, comes into conflict with the fact that nationalist parties are tremendously ascendant in these economies just as much as they are in, um, you know, more quote unquote liberal capitalist economies like the, you know, the Anglo-American model uh, in the UK and the, the US. So it can't just be kind of singular effects. That, or, or singular causes that are that are producing this kind of rise of overall nationalism. One of the things that I've been wanting to kind of highlight is that it really is a kind of a combination of factors that have allowed common conditions to really kind of dictate political outcomes. And in that vein, the idea that's, Even in welfare, you know, kind of broadly generous uh, welfare capitalist economies and societies, you can still have um, challenges to everyday life in exactly the same way um, that you have in in other economies and in other societies, uh, whether we're talking about, you know, a more, um, you know, Atlantic capitalist traditional model or or, anywhere else in the the context of the world. And obviously there are tremendous differences there. But the problem ends up becoming that welfare capitalism for all of its uh, kind of broad scale benefits, um, and, and there are many, isn't able to kind of do much in terms of shifting economic realities in terms of industry, Standards in terms of overall kind of broad scale uh, economic change. So, you know, one of the kind of hallmarks of the 70s and 80s has been kind of a decrease in manufacturing capacities, uh, particularly in formerly, aff- or were still affluent, but um, formerly dominant, affluent capitalist economies uh, like those in Europe and North America. So, this manufacturing decline has really placed a tremendous emphasis on um, kind of retraining broad scale portions of the population. So higher education, tertiary education becomes much more fundamental. That in um, a European context, or, or, you know, it varies, of course, but in a continental context, you know, comes with the expectation that that's, that's a social reality that needs to be... Provided for with regards to you know state provision and in Scandinavian economies that's true although it is shifting uh, a bit. But the re- the kind of underlying notion that you now have to have that higher education in order to engage with this new form of service and knowledge economic work um, in order to get the salaries that are going to allow you to kind of deal with increased cost burdens. Um, becomes a much more kind of daunting perspective so ultimately it, it, again long story short and I know I'm being long-winded here I apologize for that <laughs> um, the the kind of underlying notion of economic shift so the the population that dominated manufacturing in Sweden, in Finland, really in many other places. Tended to be um, male, and tended to be kind of uh, you. You didn't necessarily need a tertiary education in order to succeed in in an economy with with that was dominated by manufacturing jobs. You could make a good living. Didn't have to, you know quote unquote, waste four years, you know, going to, going getting a a college degree uh, and could really enter into the large scale economy as a, as a laborer, as a consumer, and as a participatory member of either Swedish or Finnish society. As that shifts and changes, you have a population that essentially feels left behind because they're, they, they haven't, they haven't shifted. Uh, you know in many cases the the ability to kind of um, you know move to Helsinki or move to Stockholm and just you know kind of get a get a nice cushy tech job becomes you know uh, daunting if not impossible for large portions of the population and as that population starts to kind of increase in their consumptive capacity and in their ability to produce and consume the other portion of the population becomes de-emphasized because they're no longer really kind of predominant members of a growth sector of the economy. That's true of a lot of places, um, particularly in in advanced capitalist economies. So the the reality is that the same shifts and changes that happened in the UK, the United States, Canada, et cetera, happened in Scandinavia as well. They've taken longer to kind of show up because of that kind of increased buffer of the welfare state. But for all intents and purposes, even that buffer has proven really kind of unable to deal with large scale changes in how people make their money or in this case, how people make less and less money over time.
0: Did you see that that was as dramatic in Scandinavian countries as it was in, you know, you mentioned the UK, Um, this is the case in the US as well, where uh, a lot of the frustration is sort of two pronged, at least here in the US, you have this economic adversity, um, you have, uh, for example, white males who didn't need Uh, higher education before to get a very dependable job with benefits. Um, Now they don't have access to that, but then also the U.S. has a lot of new immigrants. Um, Did you see that as much in Sweden and Finland um, where you had immigrants coming at the same time as this economic shift was happening? And then that also contributes to The rise in nationalism and xenophobia as well,
1: right? Um, Great question. That's so. One of the reasons why I picked the juxtaposition of Sweden and Finland is because of their um, disproportionate uh, immigration demographics. Uh, Sweden has been a high in migration country, particularly um, as of late, the end of the 2000s into. Um, the 2010s um, as a result of the uh, various refugee crises, um, you know, kind of beginning in predominantly um, uh, East African exodus to uh, the, the Syrian conflict that just generated huge numbers of, uh, of, of refugees and people experiencing an imaginable hardship. So, as those refugee populations and as you know kind of the the usual kind of flow of of labor migration into Sweden increased dramatically during this period, you had a little bit of an increase in Finland but not nowhere near as much um and that's that's kind of um you know very explicitly kind of borne out in the, the overall in migration statistics so If if immigration was the quote-unquote cause for the rise of nationalist parties, we should see a dramatic increase in nationalist support in high immigration-receiving countries. And we do, to a certain extent. Um, If you take a look at France, and if you take a look at the UK, and if you take a look at the US, and if you take a look at Sweden, you do see kind of dramatic increases. But you also see this increase in low-migration countries. Uh, like Finland, for example, or uh, Hungary is another kind of wonderful example. So, and and in some countries, Greece, for example, which has um, really been a a really incredible example of, uh, you know, kind of a conduit country, you know, in between, um, you know, these centers of out-migration and right on the border of uh, in-migration centers, uh, Germany, France, uh, Sweden, for instance, you you see you know a, a, certainly a, a bump in nationalist party support, but you don't necessarily see in Greece that kind of broad scale support that you've seen in other places. So it's it 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 doesn't appear that immigration can be a monocausal factor in the overall increase of these this nationalist party support. So the and, and in fact, if you look at Finland, support for the the Finns party is much more kind of formalized and it's it's a much more kind of integral part of uh, the Finnish parliament over the past, you know, in a much more kind of integrated way than, for example, the Sweden Democrats, um, who just now in, in the past election kind of ascended to this kind of, um, uh, you know, position of, of significant influence within the Swedish parliament. So you've... Got this kind of similar trajectory in terms of nationalist party increase with very, very divergent potential causes. This doesn't mean that increased numbers of immigration and uh, increased um, numbers with regards to immigration isn't a factor. It does mean that it's not the factor. I would argue that a much more consistent causal factor is the. Um, Kind of sustained adversity, the sustained adversities, and the increasing downward costs, the increasing burden placed on households in terms of um, you know having to provide larger percentages of overall annual income towards housing, food, education, healthcare, all of these different costs. That commonality it underlies increased overall support for nationalist parties. And you see this in terms of um, the limited amount of voting data that we have. And you see this kind of um, this underlying influence with regards to um, to the the kind of broad scale popular support um, for overall groups. And one of the kind of, um, you know, Interesting demographic, kind of more anecdotal than anything else. Outcomes is this, as you put it, this kind of increased support of white men uh, in the U.S., in the U.K., um, you, you know, and I guess that the same general pattern, although the, the obviously the racial and gender histories in, in these various societies uh, differ dramatically. Um, but the the support of a very common constituency in all of these respective countries for nationalist parties or at least nationalist party uh, platforms and in nationalist party um, uh, support. It ultimately ties back to the fact that those were the same populations that received, um, you know, privilege in terms of the kind of jobs that you could get. And this really shows up in the US context. Um, you know, when this, you know, 1945 through 1971 golden age of American capitalism was taking place, and when you had all these people who were buying homes and cars and had manufacturing jobs, they were all white, uh, not all, but they a significant portion of them were white and a huge portion of them were male, predominantly be, or primarily because of the sustained uh, racial segregation that existed in the United States. So it was a protected... Uh, class. It was a protected racially class in the U.S. example. Now, while that might not have existed in Sweden or Finland, the same general populations, um, you know, locally predominant populations, that just because of the demographics of, of Scandinavia, also kind of mirror that of the U.K. and the U.S. Um, but it's really that that shift and change of manufacturing that I think is a much more causal factor than anything else
0: really fascinating paper. And I might add, uh, you have a great academic reference here in the beginning. Uh, so <laughs> your parents might've done it with just one job, but now you're working for less and twice as hard. Uh, that is of course from the band dropkick Murphys, uh, sums this up very nicely. Uh, so, uh, Corey Blad, thank you again so much for speaking with us today.
1: Thank you very much. I really appreciate it. And, um, I hope everybody stays safe and well.
0: Thank you, uh, Professor Corey Blad. He is the author of "Searching for Saviors: Economic Adversities and the Challenge of Political Legitimacy in the Neoliberal Era." You are listening to the Humanities Matter podcast. You can find more podcast episodes on Apple Podcast, Spotify, and Google Podcast.